Good morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We ask that you would feed us daily bread for our souls from your word in this hour. Pray that the Spirit would give us ears to hear uh, and humble hearts to receive your word as our ultimate authority. Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. We ask this in the name of your risen Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would please take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Before I became the pastor here, I was on staff at a church out in Queens, and so our family lived in these co-op apartments uh, out in Little Neck, Queens. Uh, Now, the co-op had a a very limited number of uh, private garages, uh, much fewer uh, than the number of apartments that existed. And so when our family first moved there back in uh, 2012, uh, we put our names on a waiting list uh, because, I mean, who wouldn't want a private garage to just kind of store all your junk? Now, I knew that the wait list was long, Uh, and that very few people who had these uh, private garages were moving out. But from time to time, every now and then, I would call up the management. Hey, this is the Fujiwaras, Unit 321, just wondering how we're doing on that uh, garage waiting list. And they'd always give me the same answer, which is basically, oh, it all depends on uh, whether new openings come up, Uh, we'll keep you posted. But I remember one time, uh, the lady was just real with me. She says, Listen, you're not going to get off that waiting list for a really long time. Okay, well, thank you for being honest, right? At that point, I basically gave up. I was never going to get a private garage. And if you're wondering, when we moved out in 2019, we still did not have a garage. Now, at times, as we've been going through the books of Samuel, it's kind of felt that way with David and the kingship of Israel. Like this man... He is on this waiting list for a really long time. And maybe there are points when uh, even David himself was tempted to give up. Because it's all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And remember that 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book, later split into two parts. And so we should expect that kind of continuity of storyline, right? We should expect to continually refer back to 1 Samuel in our study of 2 Samuel. It's in 1 Samuel 16 that David is first anointed king by the prophet Samuel. Now Saul's reigning as king over Israel at that time. He'd been rejected by God because of his disobedience. And so the Lord tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem, go find this man Jesse, because I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel goes, and it's not any of the older seven sons, no matter how kingly and regal they look, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Instead, it's David, the youngest son, who is God's chosen king. And Samuel anoints him with oil, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him right then and there. And then in the chapters that follow, David just receives confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that he will indeed be king of Israel. Uh, Some of that confirmation came from just how obvious it was that God was with him. 
whether it's him defeating Goliath or all the victories that he had over the Philistines as a military commander or just how everybody loved him. And some of that confirmation came from the mouths of certain people. Whether it was Jonathan, remember Saul's son, giving David his robe and his weapons, basically giving up his right to be the next king to David. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Or even from the mouth of Saul. Saul who hated David. Even Saul admits, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. But even with that promise, even with all of those confirmations, chapter after chapter after chapter goes by. And year after year after year passes And he's still not the king. And not only is he not the king, he's not even close. He's in exile. He's on the run. He's living as a a refugee in, in caves. And so there has to have been at least a part of him that was thinking, wondering, is this ever actually going to happen? But then things take a massive turn. The Battle of Gilboa when the Philistines kill King Saul. Now, last week we talked about David's lament uh, from chapter 1, how he didn't primarily see Saul's death as an opportunity for him to become king. Uh, Primarily, he was just grieved in his heart. And we see that clearly expressed in this heartfelt lament. But even though it wasn't his primary focus, that doesn't change the fact that now that Saul is dead, it is time for David to become king. It is finally time for David to get off of the wait list and rightly take hold of that which he had patiently waited for decades. The fulfillment of God's promises to him. It's finally time for David to become king. So let's go through this chapter now, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Divided the chapter into three sections so that hopefully we can see the, the bigger picture of the chapter We've got the kingdom of David in verses 1 through 7. We've got the kingdom of Abner in verses 8 through 11. And then we've got the kingdoms at war in verses 12 through 32. The kingdom of David, the kingdom of Abner, and the kingdoms at war. Point number one is the kingdom of David. So Saul is dead. David knows that he's going to be king of Israel after Saul. Right? God's made that clear to him. But remember, where is David at this time? He's not in Israel. He's like subletting Ziklag among the Philistines. He's been there the last 16 months. He's, avoiding, uh, he's been avoiding Saul's ex- expeditions to kill him. But now Saul's gone. Right? It's safe to return. And so step number one in David becoming king is going to be for him to move back to Israel. And if he's going to go back to Israel... Well, of course, it makes sense for him to go to the tribe of Judah. Remember that Israel had 12 landed tribes, and Judah was David's tribe? You remember that small little detail from the end of 1 Samuel chapter 30? Uh, David and his men defeat the Amalekites, and they retrieve all of their stuff, and then it's like, what are we going to do with all this extra spoil? Well, look at chapter 30, verses 26 and following. When David came to Ziklag... He sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah. 
saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Is for those in Bethel, and then there's a whole bunch of cities in Judah. And now look at the last one in verse 31, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Hebron. And so if it makes sense for David to go to Judah, then within the land of Judah, it makes sense for him to go to the city of Hebron, because that's the largest city in Judah. It's well protected because of its high elevation. But there's another reason that Hebron makes sense. And that's that Hebron is right next to Carmel. So Carmel, that, that sounds familiar. Well, you remember who's from Carmel. It's Nabal. Remember that after God strikes Nabal dead, David marries Nabal's widow, Abigail. That gives him influence. That gives him connections. That gives him relationships in the area of Hebron. All that to say, the timing makes sense. The location makes sense. Of course, David should just go ahead and move into Judah, move into the city of Hebron, and begin his rule as king. And so that's what we expect verse 1 to say, that David triumphantly moves into Hebron, but that's not what it says. Look at verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. I think that shows us just how far David has come. Uh, We've seen him at times just make really rash decisions without consulting the Lord at all. You remember the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 27? Then David said, in his heart, there is nothing better for me than I should live in the land of the Philistines. He doesn't consult the Lord at all there. He listens to his heart. But here, we see David patiently, in faith, seeking God's will. Probably through the high priest Abiathar and the Urim and the Thummim. Instead of rushing to take matters into his own hands. Asking God to direct him. Even when the answer as to where he should go, it's practically pretty obvious. Even being willing to not go to Hebron, if that is what the Lord makes clear. I think there's a lesson in there for all of God's people. I mean, David knew that he was going to be the next king. And he knew that Hebron was the obvious choice. But he still consulted the Lord. He had a humble heart. Totally reliant, dependent on the Lord and his will. I'm not going to make any big decisions in my life without first seeking the Lord's will. But armed with God's explicit command, knowing that what he's doing is in line with the will of God, David and his men go to Hebron. And there he's crowned king. Verse 4, the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. You'll remember, David has already been anointed king back in 1 Samuel 16 by God, through God's prophet Samuel. But this is like his public coronation, right? This is the the people of Judah, they're acknowledging the fulfillment of God's promise from all the way back then. David is now our king. 
And so after years of refusing to take matters into his own hands, after years of refusing to sin, to hasten the fulfillment of God's promise to him, remember he has multiple opportunities to kill Saul if he wanted to. Never puts out his hand against God's king. After years of patiently waiting for God to bring about the kingship that God had promised, David is finally king, at least over the tribes of Judah. What a clear contrast with the man who comes before him. Look, you guys remember why Saul was originally rejected by God for Samuel 13. It's because he could not patiently wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. It's because he decides to take matters into his own hands. He makes the sacrifice himself. I'm not waiting for Samuel. I'm not waiting for God. But David, on the other hand, is the exact opposite, displaying patient endurance. Brothers and sisters, that patient endurance of David that we've seen throughout the second half of the book of 1 Samuel and now into the beginning of 2 Samuel the patiently waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, is that not what we are called to as well? We're exiles in a foreign land. Uh, We're sojourners. We're waiting for our heavenly home. Uh, We've had a foretaste in our salvation of that glory that's going to come. But we're called to patiently endure through every trial in this life until we receive our full inheritance Hebrews chapter 6 talks about us being imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. David is just one example for us. So now David's king. Look at David's first act as king now. What is the first act as king that we have recorded? Well, you remember the the good folks from Jabesh Gilead. Remember them from the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31. Uh, Saul is killed and uh, and the Philistines find his body and and they basically make him into this public spectacle. Uh, They nail his dead body to the wall of Bethshan for everyone to see uh, just desecrating uh, shamefully his body. Well, the people of Jabesh Gilead hear about this and they're moved to act. They remember how Saul, when he first became king of Israel, how Saul saved them, how Saul saved their city from Nahash and the Ammonites. And so they bravely march to Bethshan. They retrieve the body. They give Saul a proper burial, or at least as proper as possible given the circumstances. And so in that sense, this is the exact opposite of what happened with the Amalekite in chapter 1. Because the Amalekites sought to take advantage of Saul's death for his own gain, and David punishes him. But the men of Jabesh Gilead, they risk their lives to honor Saul in his legacy and his death. And so David chooses to honor them. Verse 4, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. A few thoughts about this. First, you might think, given that the people of Jabesh Gilead are clearly supportive of Saul, they loved King Saul, that David might see them as a threat. 
that they might see them as rivals and thus want to wipe them out. But no, not only does he spare them, he chooses to honor them. And that confirms what we saw last week. David wasn't just giving lip service and just kind of honoring King Saul with platitudes at his death. No, David really did want to honor Saul, both in life and in death. And here he goes as far as honoring others who honored Saul in his death. But second, look at that last line there in verse 7. It's basically an invitation for the men of Jabesh-Gilead to pledge their allegiance to David. And this is significant, not just because of the tie to uh, 1 Samuel 31, but also because, uh, Christina, what, is, uh, what are the three most important things in real estate? It's location, location, location. Right? Well, what is Jabesh Gilead's location? It's not in Judah. It's not even close to Judah where David is being crowned king. It's all the way up in the part of the tribe of Manasseh on the other side of the Jordan River. And so you can kind of picture the promised land here. You've got the the Jordan River kind of cutting through the middle here. You've got the the west side, and then you've got the east side over here. Down in the southern part of the western half, that's where Judah is. That's where David is being crowned king. All the way on the other side of the Jordan, on the east side, to the north, in the Manasseh part of the eastern side of the Jordan River, that, that is where the city of Jabesh-Gilead is located. And so this is not just David choosing to become king over one tribe of Israel. This is David seeing that God's promise to him is much greater than just the tribe of Judah. God's promise to him is that he is going to rule over the entire nation, all 12 tribes of the kingdom of Israel. And this entreaty to Jabesh Gilead is the first step that he takes in that direction. Be strong and be valiant. The house of Judah has anointed me king. What about you? Will you too recognize me as your king? You've been valiant before, right? When you honored Saul. Will you be valiant now in honoring me? So David is king. David is trying to expand his kingdom. But in keeping with everything else that has happened so far in this book, right? This too doesn't come easy for David. Because you might think, well, Judah's recognized him as king. It's not long before the other tribes all follow suit, but not so fast. Look at verse 8. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. And so here we have point number two the kingdom of Abner. Now notice that point number two is not the kingdom of Ishbosheth. Because even though Ishbosheth is technically the king, even though that's what it says on his business card, there's no doubt who's really in charge, who's really running the show. Abner controls the army. Abner has the power. Abner has the influence. But Abner knows that he can't just declare himself to be king. He's got no pedigree. He's got no right, especially with Saul's last remaining son still alive. And so he sets up Ishbosheth as a puppet king over the other 11 tribes of Israel besides the tribe of Judah. 
there's some confusion about the timeline here. That's in verses 10 and 11. Like, when exactly during David's seven and a half year reign in Hebron does Ishbosheth rule? Uh, the answer is probably that it took five years or so for Abner to kind of sufficiently deal with the Philistines to the point that he can declare Ishbosheth king. And so Ishbosheth's rule kind of coincides with the end of David's time in Hebron before he rules in Jerusalem. But whatever the chronology is, one thing is clear. Abner sets up a rival king to oppose King David. Abner establishes a rival kingdom to go against David's kingdom. But that's exactly what it is. It's Abner's kingdom. It's a kingdom of his own. This is not God's work. This is not God's will. This is not by God's anointing. There is no prophet here. There is no priest here. There's no anointing from the Lord here. It's just the work of Abner. And you can see that contrast so clearly in these verses. Verses 1 through 4. God directs David to go to Hebron, and there the people anoint him king. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Abner brings Ishbosheth to Mahanaim, and there, look at verse 9, he made him king. This is the work of Abner. And interestingly enough, Abner sets up his capital at Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim is a, a city on the east of the Jordan River. It's just kind of like Jabesh Gilead. Uh, which probably means, by the way, that on the western side of the Jordan, there was still a lot of Philistine influence, and so they chose Mahanaim because it was kind of safe and detached from, from where the Philistines had their influence. But it's also interesting because Mahanaim, uh, that name goes all the way back to Jacob. It goes all the way back to Genesis. The name means two camps. And so it's kind of ironic that Abner establishes the rival kingdom the second camp in Mahanaim, two camps. Point number one, the kingdom of David. And now we have point number two, the kingdom of Abner. And when you have two kingdoms, when you have two camps, you've got David as the, the king over the tribe of Judah, and you've got Ishbosheth as, as king over the other 11 tribes, naturally that's going to lead to tension and conflict. One nation, one people, but two camps and two kings, that's going to lead to conflict. Which leads us to point number three, the kingdoms at war. Now, before we go any further into chapter two, I, I just kind of want to make sure we're all clear on the characters. Uh, there's nothing more difficult than reading a book or watching a movie where you're kind of mixing up the characters and you don't know who's who. So just let's get this straight. Right? David, his commander is Joab. Also happens to be his nephew when it says Joab, the son of Zeruiah. Zeruiah is David's sister. And so Joab, David's nephew, is the commander of his army. Uh, Joab has two brothers who are going to come up really soon named Abishai and Asahel. They're also soldiers in David's army. Then you've got Abner. Abner was Saul's commander, but now course, Saul is dead, and so he is King Ishbosheth's commander, although, like we said earlier, he's really the one in charge. And so you've got Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, right? That, that's kind of Team David over here. And then you've got Abner, he is Team Ishbosheth. Look at verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now remember, Mahanaim is on the east side of the Jordan River. 
Gibeon is on the west side. And so Abner and a large group of soldiers, they're crossing the Jordan River, going to Gibeon, which is in the tribe of Benjamin. It's just north of the city of Hebron. And you say, why would they do that? Well, they're doing that to attack David and his men, uh, to bring the tribe of Judah under Ishbosheth's rule as well. But they came to fight. Now, for the rest of the story, I want you to remember this because uh, things kind of get flipped, turned upside down later. Uh, remember, Abner is the aggressor. Abner is starting all of this. David's side doesn't start the war. David doesn't say, hey, this Ishbosheth guy, he's got no right to be doing this, setting up a rival kingdom. Uh, I'm going to go and destroy him. Again, remember his patient endurance, his trust in God's promises, and his respect for Saul's family. And so he doesn't do any of that. Abner is the aggressor. But verse 13, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David, they went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Joab, now that's David's commander, we're going to see through the rest of this book, he's not exactly one to back down from anything. And so Joab leads his men out, and they kind of meet Abner's men at the pool of Gibeon. And this isn't like, you know, two groups. They just kind of randomly run into each other like, hey, how's it going? Good to see you at the pool. Uh, No, everybody knows why they're there, right? Everybody knows that you've got Ishbosheth and Abner. You've got David and Joab. They've got competing claims to the kingdom of Israel. Something's going down here. So you've got Abner and his men on one side of the pool. You've got Joab and his men on the other side of the pool. Each side's probably trying to look tough and stare the other side down and, and be intimidating like, like, like a weigh-in before a boxing match. And then verse 14, Abner says to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And so they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, it's not quite clear what Abner meant in verse 14. We have there, let the young men arise and compete before us. Some other translations of that verse, just to kind of give you an idea. Uh, The NIV says, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand-to-hand in front of us. Uh, The NASB has, now let the young men arise and hold a martial skills match in our presence. Sounds like they're going to start doing like nunchuck demonstrations or something. But the King James is better. The King James has, let the young men now arise and play before us which sounds like a slopish softball game is about to break out. Uh, So what kind of competition Abner has in mind here? Like, we don't know. And clearly the translators have struggled with it as well. Uh, In all likelihood, right, given the context, think about the context, it's going to be some kind of representative battle. Think back to the representative battle of David and Goliath. Your side wins, we will submit to you. Our side wins, you will surrender to us. Probably something like that. Basically, it's a way to decide this conflict without the costs of an all-out war. But it clearly doesn't go as planned because the 24 guys, 12 on 12, 
they all end up killing each other, which resolves absolutely nothing. Basically, everybody loses. Nobody's a winner. They even call the place, if you see the footnote in your Bible, the field of sword edges because all 24 of them tragically die by the edge of the sword. But since that representative competition or battling or whatever you want to call it, it clearly produces no decisive winner, the other men who are there, all the soldiers who are there, they basically decide to battle one another. And there's this fierce battle. And then verse 17 tells us that Joab and his side end up crushing Abner and his side. But now the author kind of zooms in a bit. Right? Verse 17 kind of gives us the, the big picture of what happened. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. But now the author kind of zooms into one particular battle within the battle. Look at verse 18. The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And there he fell and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So the battle's progressing. Asahel comes upon Abner, kind of separated from the rest of the battle, and he starts chasing him. And Asahel sees a golden opportunity here because if he can kill Abner, if he can subdue Abner, remember Abner is the real power behind Ishbosheth, behind the opposing kingdom. If he can get rid of Abner, then surely David's path to the kingship becomes that much easier. So Asahel has, has the opportunity to be the one to bring that about. Now Abner, he realizes that it's Asahel chasing after him. Basically, he tells him, you know, go after someone else. The way he talks to him, why should I strike you to the ground? Kind of makes it seem like, even though Asahel was a, a skilled soldier, one of the 30, one of David's mighty men, Abner makes it sound like he was clearly a much more skilled fighter than Asahel was. He's basically like, hey, listen, man, I, I don't want to hurt you. I really don't want you hurt. Please stop chasing me or I'm going to hurt you. Don't make me do this. But Abner realizes that he's not going to outrun Asahel, gazelle-like Asahel. And so he strikes him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. Now, from the fact that he's not using the top of his spear, like the really sharp end uh, meant to be used in battle, kind of get the idea that he really doesn't want to kill Asahel. He's probably trying to take the butt of his spear and just jab it into his stomach so that maybe knock the wind out of him, maybe knock him down for a little bit so he can get away. But perhaps because of how fast Asahel is running at him, he basically runs right through the spear. And the author seems to like go out of his way to include all these small little details so that we, the reader, would know that Abner did not want to kill Asahel, that Abner does this in self-defense. But on the big scheme of things, We're going to find out later that 380 men die on this day. You say, why so much specific detail given to one man's death? One of 380. The answer is because Asahel is Joab's brother. And again, that's part of the reason why he didn't want to kill him. 
I want you to kind of hold that in the back of your head because that is going to play a huge role in everything that happens in the next chapter, chapter 3. Let me summarize the rest of the chapter. Joab and Abishai, the, the brothers of Asahel, they, they're obviously really upset that Abner killed their brother. And so they pursue Abner and his men, and the sun's starting to go down, and Abner and his men find themselves on a hill. And Abner basically calls for a ceasefire. Look at verse 26. Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And so Joab agrees. He blows a trumpet, and he stops pursuing Abner. Now, Abner's appeal for peace here, the the, the sword is going to devour everybody. It's just going to be a tragic ending unless we stop this right now. We're all brothers here. We're all Israelites. Why are we doing this? Like, on one hand, that's totally sensible. That's totally rational. But on the other hand, that's a really bad look for Abner because remember who started all of this. Abner is the instigator. Abner is the aggressor. So basically, he's like the the playground bully that, that starts the fight, but he can't finish it. And look at what he says. He says, how long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And it's like, dude, you started all of this. But Joab agrees, at least for now, hold that thought. And so everybody goes home. Abner and his men, they go back across the Jordan to the east side, back to Mahanaim. And Joab and his men go back to Hebron. Now look at verse 30. In this battle, David's side loses 19 men plus Asahel. So let's do a little bit of math here. If that number includes the 12 that died in the representative combat, you're basically looking at eight other casualties. But now look at verse 31. Abner's side loses 360 men minus 12. That's 348 casualties. You don't have to be a PhD in math to know that that is an absolute slaughter. But also think about this. If 360 of Abner's guys died and there was a ceasefire, like a premature stoppage to the battle, presumably Abner brought hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers on this expedition. And so that kind of confirms the suspicion that we had earlier that this is not like Abner and a few friends that are going out for like a nature walk and they run into Joab by chance and and they have this battle No, they're coming in full force with a full army to try and subdue David and his kingdom and take Judah for the kingdom of Ishbosheth. Point number three, the kingdoms at war. And we're going to pick up on this point next time from chapter three. Romans 15.4, Romans, that's in the, the New Testament, Romans 15.4 tells us that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so as we think about this story, really an interesting story from this chapter of 2 Samuel, how does this story about two ancient kingdoms, how does the story of the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Abner, how does that instruct us? as 21st century Christians? And how does it give us hope to know about these kingdoms that existed so long ago? Well, I think the key is to understand big picture what's going on here, what's happening in this chapter, because this chapter isn't just about David becoming king over the tribe of Judah. Big picture, it's about God establishing his king to rule over his people. 
And so in that sense, it's a clear foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. It's a clear foreshadowing of what is to come through Jesus Christ. King David points us to the reality of King Jesus and his reign as God's king over God's people. And so with that in mind, what can we learn about the kingdom of God from 2 Samuel chapter 2? Let me give you three takeaways. Number one, the kingdom of God is always opposed. The kingdom of God is always opposed. As soon as we're told that David is made king over Judah, like just a few verses later, we learn that Abner has set himself up against David. Abner, we're going to talk a lot more about him next time from chapter 3. Abner is the personification of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth want to be kings like Abner. They set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, in this case, King David, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Abner sets up a rival kingdom to the kingdom of David. Abner sets up a rival king in opposition to God's king. But that should be no surprise to us because the kingdom of God is always opposed. And it doesn't start with Abner. The kingdom of Abner is just like the the latest iteration of this opposition. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve living in harmony with God in God's kingdom. What do they do? They buy into the lies of Satan. Did God actually say, do you really trust his rule? God knows that when you eat of that fruit, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Basically, you don't need God to rule over you. You can be king. And so it started with Adam and Eve. It continued with Abner and Ishbosheth. It continued yet with the Jews of Jesus' day. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We have no king but Caesar. And it continues today in the hearts of each and every person who rejects Christ. We will not have this man to rule over us. And so we reject Christ. We reject him as king, and we instead try to establish ourselves on the throne of our hearts. We will be king. The kingdom of God is always opposed. Mahanaim, two camps, one that submits to King Jesus and everyone else who rejects God's chosen king. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Takeaway number one, the kingdom of God is always opposed. And we can see that even in the hearts of some of you who are with us today. I will be king. Takeaway number two, the kingdom of God is seemingly insignificant. Seemingly insignificant. If you've never read this chapter before, coming into this chapter, you're expecting, right, after everything that's happened in 1 Samuel, having seen the promises that God has made to David, 
We're expecting here, we're at the beginning of 2 Samuel, Saul is dead, David's path is clear. We are coming into this chapter expecting that all 12 tribes would gloriously crown David in unison. Long live King David. But no, all David gets is one tribe. Look again at verse 10. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. Oh, the kingdom of God is so seemingly insignificant. It's the rival kingdom, right? The false kingdom, the kingdom of Abner under Ishbosheth's leadership. It's that kingdom that gets 11 tribes. And so the kingdom of Abner, seemingly larger, more glorious. But friends, we need to know this. God's people throughout redemptive history have never been big or glamorous or glorious. God has always chosen to work through a small remnant. It's like what God says to Elijah. Yes, the nation of Israel as a whole, they have turned to Baal. And so the kingdom of Baal looks so much more powerful and glorious and glamorous than the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God seems so insignificant. But I have kept for myself 7,000 men. Not 7 million men, 7,000, just a small fraction of the kingdom. I have kept for myself a, a small remnant who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, Romans 11:5. at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Brothers and sisters, we look around us uh, we see the world around us. We, we see unbelief and we see ungodliness. We see it everywhere. We see so few faithful churches and we wonder what is happening to the kingdom of God. But then we remember that's how the kingdom of God works. Seemingly insignificant. Like a, like a mustard seed. Like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. It's small. It's seemingly insignificant. It's unspectacular. It's a small little remnant. But make no mistake that God is at work. He has been establishing his kingdom throughout redemptive history, and he is establishing his kingdom even as we speak. That's hard to see at times. Again, because the kingdom of God is so seemingly insignificant. And if you struggle with that, well, you've got good company. Because back in the day, John the Baptist had a similar struggle. And so he asks of Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Basically, if you are God's king, then why isn't the kingdom of God bigger and greater and grander? Matthew eleven four, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But it's not that the kingdom of God is insignificant. 
It's that the kingdom of God is seemingly insignificant. It appears insignificant. But it won't always be that way. Because yet David starts small. He's got just one tribe under his rule. But we know God is going to be faithful to his word. Even we haven't read the rest of the book. We know that God always keeps his promises. We know that David is going to become king over Israel, just like God said he would. And we're going to see that come to fruition. It's inevitable over the next few chapters. Abner dies, chapter 3. Ishbosheth dies, chapter 4. All Israel comes to anoint him as king in chapter 5. But even sitting here, back in chapter 2, we know that it's coming. It's inevitable. The kingdom of David will triumph. The kingdom of Abner has no chance. And in the same way, the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ... It's full consummation, Christ's rule over all. It's inevitable. At present, we do not see everything in in subject to him. But we know that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Seemingly insignificant, but ultimately glorious. Finally, takeaway number three, the kingdom of God is good news. Luke 8, 1. Afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Friends, the kingdom of God is good news. It's the good news of the gospel. That today you can be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God. It's the good news that today you can have your sins forgiven and be made right with God because Jesus died on a cross for sinners like you and me. It's the good news that today, by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ and Christ alone, you too can become a child of God. The kingdom of God is good news. Christ receiveth sinful men. Will you come to him? Whoever comes to me, Jesus said, John 6, 37, I will never cast out. I think the structure of verses 1 through 11 is fascinating. So let's just take one more look at it. I want you to see in your Bibles. Verses 1 through 4, you've got David being anointed king according to God's command. He's the Lord's anointed to rule over the Lord's people. Verses 8 through 11, you've got Ishbosheth being made king against God's command as a competing kingdom of man. And right in the middle of those two kingdoms, you've got the good folks of Jabesh Gilead. The men of Jabesh Gilead, formerly loyal to Saul, now called by David himself to come under his rule. Let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David is calling them to leave old things behind. Saul is dead and come into his kingdom. Now, we don't know what happened with Jabesh Gilead. We're not told. But we do know one thing. There is no neutral option. The people of Jabesh are either going to be under David's rule or Abner's rule. 
And that's because there will always be war between opposing kingdoms. Peek ahead to verse 1 of chapter 3, you'll see that it was a long war. There will always be war. But the kingdom of God, with King Jesus on the throne, the kingdom of God doesn't grow through military force or strength. The kingdom of God grows through the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of God grows through God sovereignly working in the hearts of sinners like you and like me. And perhaps he's worked in your heart this morning. Or perhaps he's worked in the heart of the person sitting next to you this morning. Sovereignly granting eyes to see the glory of Jesus. Sovereignly granting faith to believe the gospel. The good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is always opposed. The kingdom of God is seemingly insignificant. But most important of all, the kingdom of God is good news. It's the good news of the gospel, and it's that gospel that stands to save each and every person in this room this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, establish your son as king in the hearts of every single person in this room. Lord, those that came into this room defiantly saying, I will be king. I will not have this man to rule over me. God, we pray that you would allow them to be born again, that you would do the sovereign work of regeneration in their hearts, that they might have eyes to see the glory of King Jesus. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.